Hello and welcome to yet another episode of Mastering Dungeons. I am Sean Merwin here with air drummer extraordinaire Teos Abadia. Hey Teos, what's going on? <laughs> uh, you know, just trying to do my usual bit of distracting you while you do the lead-in, but um, yeah, I'm doing pretty well. Uh, as, as I was saying to you earlier, my septic tank had a problem and then it was fixed for only $750, which is an enormous win in this day of adulthood, so... Uh, everything's flowing really well these days, Sean. <laughs> everything's flowing, including yeah. our show. Luckily, <laughs> our show flows downhill, so I mean... we are going to get you all the best news and discussion this week. Uh, so, we're, yeah, we're going to continue right. this week with our discussion of updating old adventures because we got some pretty good reactions to it. Yeah, uh, yeah, people so liked it. When, when we uh, get to that portion of our show, we will refresh everyone's memory on what we're doing and talking about but first let's get to the news and big business news again this week in the D role-playing game realm uh there was a large story that hit many of the larger financial uh reports and reporting that hasbro uh, certain hasbro stock owners um investment fund that owns point or 2.5 percent of hasbro is pushing for uh, Hasbro to sell off Wizards of the Coast as a separate company. Uh, why, might you ask? Well, it has why? to do with things that we've been reporting on. Uh, Hasbro has not been doing as well as it has in the past with changes in the way that people consume entertainment. They do so less now in terms of plastic dolls. Imagine that. Mm -hmm. And do so more in digital realms and with their imaginations. And uh, so since Wizards of the Coast was 20% of Hasbro's revenue, but over 70% of its profits, uh, people who know about stocks or think they know about stocks (laughs) are saying, Hasbro is probably not doing what would be best for Wizards of the Coast. Hasbro's probably doing what's best for Hasbro in terms of rating their uh, profits and not giving back uh, the, the funds necessary to make the most of the situation that Wizards finds itself in right now. So uh, that that was the, the big news, and... There was many follow-ups on this, including quotes and thoughts from former employees at Wizards of the Coast. I'm going to let you take over there and have your say. Yeah, and thanks especially to listener Scipio, who uh, broke down the the video and 100-slide deck that Alta Fox, this investment fund, put up on their website. Um, So they had a quote from a former 16-year Watsi employee saying, Synergies have been in one direction. Wizards of the Coast has given a ton to Hasbro in financial resources, while Hasbro has not given much back. Perpetually pushing Wizards of the Coast brands behind Hasbro's brands has led Watsi's development back by 10 years. And another senior game designer said that there's a lot of pressure on Wizards to achieve high revenue targets and reduce costs. So many of our decisions were at the mercy, mercy of meeting larger corporate financial targets. The philosophy won't let us do what is best for Magic the Gathering. Or it wasn't, let's do what is best for Magic the Gathering. It was always, let's do what is best for Hasbro. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's another quote from a senior designer that says that this cultural shift under the 
previous Watsi president who just switched out, um, who is now the CEO of Hasbro, that Chris Cox brought in a Microsoft culture where crunch became more real rather than the laid back wolf work life balance that had existed before. And what all of this does, I mean, there's sort of two pieces, right? One is that the concrete request, because when you have a lot of shares of of stock, you can, you can exert your influence, right? I mean, anyone can speak up at a stakeholder meeting, but, but you can, um, a shareholder meeting, but, but when you own this much, you get to get listened to. And so Hasbro has met with these people. Um, and it's a big deal to think about it. Uh, analysts said that there's only like a 30% chance that this would happen. It's not a strong enough push to probably drive anything. Um, and there were a number of analysts and, and it's funny. I mean, like this is being discussed on like CNBC, right? Right. Exactly. But, you know, they're saying that, that there are, you can you can argue against what this person is saying. But the second thing of this is that what it does is it sheds an enormous spotlight on how well Wizards is doing within Hasbro mm-hmm. and pushes the company to possibly do things differently or for outsiders to evaluate the company differently and maybe make demands of it, uh, which could affect its stock price and all that sort of junk that, that happens when you're a company of this size. And that will be very interesting to see, you know, does that end up being good for Wizards, bad for Wizards, good for D&D, bad for D&D? And no telling, but it probably does change things. Right. And, you know, I've heard Wizards of the Coast employees speak in the past before, say, for fifth edition. And, you know, in commenting on the relationship between Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro, they were really more of the... Uh, thought that Hasbro is pretty hands off as yeah. long as as long as Wizards <laughs> gives them the money mm-hmm. that they that they want, they just let them do their own thing. And- yeah, even as early as two years ago, I was hearing staff say, um, "It you know, it's independent. We do our thing. We report to them. That's yeah. it." Uh, but I think that's changed in the last two years. And the you know the person who's giving all these quotes uh, could be the same person because all it says is a former senior Wizards of the Coast game designer, and it also probably is not a D and D person. Right. The, the, this could be a Magic the Gathering person, and you know that's not something that I play. It's not something that I get into. Um, so for, you know, for me, I don't know enough to comment intelligently on that side of yeah. things. How much more revenue could they have um, squeezed out of of Magic: The Gathering? How could Magic: The Gathering have changed in ways that the developers and the designers wanted to that Hasbro didn't allow them to? Mm-hmm. You know, all of these questions are are interesting, and you know, we'll, we may never know the answer. Yeah. Uh, so you know, D and D is one thing magic the gathering is another so when you talk about wizards as as this article mentioned most of what they're talking about is magic the gathering yeah it's worth seeing that magic is an entirely different place right where they are dueling in a very contested heated battle every year with pokemon Yu-Gi-Oh, and others that try to make it onto that list of three right and there have been years when magic recent years where magic looked weak mm-hmm. you know and 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 the amount of attention has always been extremely high on the, that department or departments depending on what years you're talking about mm-hmm. and so there you know i can see that pressure and that crunch existing there 
where people would say, you know, what happened this year? We need to revamp, right? Let's do it this way. Let's do it this other way. Right. And there is a lot of equation to it, right? They're not, they're not building uh, books. They are coming up with ratios within sets and types of rarities. And it's a, it, you know, it's a mathematical sort of approach to how this should work. And that's a complex thing that can result in a lot of pressure. So, yeah, I agree with you that this could very well be almost entirely about magic and yet may come back to have strong impacts for the D&D team, depending on what gets done because of this. Yeah. So as I always say after these, we will keep an eye on the news to uh, inform you about any other business-related things. Uh, in a meeting where new products were being shown, Hasbro, Wizards of the Coast, uh, has accidentally maybe shown <laughs> that they are putting out a new D&D starter set. It was previously unannounced. It's called Dungeons & Dragons, Dragons of Stormwreck Isle. Um, the price in this presentation was shown as $49.99, which is double the, at <laughs> least double the price of the previous uh, starter box sets. Uh, that price has been questioned as whether that was an error. Uh, Ray Winninger, who is one of the you know leaders of D&D at Wizards of the Coast, has said uh, that price was an error. Uh, but we don't know what that price is. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, I was surprised to see that they would have a new starter set, and yet I wasn't, uh, because you know you want to sell more new stuff. So uh, while the previous two starter sets may be perfectly cromulent and useful uh, for DMs and players, here comes another one. Yeah, and it, it may be that this is about that target shelf space, maybe, you know, mm -hmm. um, the ability to to get this into stores and, and have something that looks new. Um, and, and that can drive sales up significantly to have something that looks new in those kinds of environments, catches the eye, market it a slightly different way. I don't know. We'll have to see what's in it, right? And how that impacts things. Like, you know, last time there was a different class, so maybe they, they do something like that here. Or maybe it'll contain, you know, some of those 5.5 type elements that will get everybody interested and, and have all of us buying it or a really super cool adventure because one of the things that the starter sets have had is really good adventures mm -hmm. and even really good follow-up adventures uh, as you can find the ones in D&D &D Beyond that Sean helped write. Um, so, you know, I, it's, it's a good thing, I guess. You know, I'm looking forward to it. I know I'll buy it. And oh, I'll, yeah. If the, if the adventure is half as good as the last one, I will eat it up with a spoon. So. Yep. Yep. So that's out there. Uh, the speculation on what it will contain uh, will continue, and we will continue to speculate right along with everyone else. Uh, but it's uh, one thing that was on that uh, on that. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? On the schedule that yeah. that we keep a track of that just popped up because of this presentation. So we'll uh, we'll keep keep an eye on that. Um, yeah, not... if I had to guess, I would look at something like spring or you know late spring, early summer is probably what this kind of positioning would would suggest. But mm -hmm. we'll see. Yeah. Uh, in five E news, but not D and D news, Cubicle Seven has announced that they are making a five E version of Doctor Who called Doctor Who. Doctors and Daleks instead of Dungeons and Dragons. Mm. You see, they do mm. the D there. I, you know, I had actually missed it until now, yeah. and now I'm smarter for it. 
There you go. Uh, so Cubicle 7 already produces a Doctor Who game called Doctor Who Adventures in Time and Space. So they have that license. Uh, it uses its own game system. I played it once probably six or seven years ago now. Hmm. Uh, and so it's there, right? It's something that they sell. There are many, many, many books and supplements for it. So this announcement that they were making a 5e version of the Doctor Who franchise caught a few people by surprise uh, and apparently angered a lot of people <laughs> because there was a large discussion online. I did not, I do not go online as much as I used to uh, for social media things. So I did mm -hmm. not see any of the initial outcry against a 5e version of a Doctor Who game. But I saw one of the designers who is working on the game say, you know, we're catching a lot of flack for this. Please think about what you're saying because there are people on the other side and we haven't made the game yet. So how do you know what the game is going to be until you see yeah. it? Uh, and then that just, you know, then I saw a lot of people apologizing for their initial reaction to, uh, to this news. So, uh, it's uh yeah it, it's there it's something if you like 5e as a rule set uh and if you like doctor who we'll see what the marriage of those two things uh ends up looking like yeah i mean i think it's it's necessary for where uh some online spaces are like twitter and forums various forums it's necessary to have these conversations as painful as they are to remind people to be compassionate to one another, uh, to to understand that 5e is going to attract a lot of people. And if, if you don't want the 5e version, you can play the other version. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's no reason to just go out there and, and spew hatred. But some people would not back down from that, e even after, you know, there was this impassioned plea from one of the creators, which is unfortunate. But but there are people who just hate D&D, &D, and they're going to take to the streets whenever they can and try to uh, bring up mup, muck. I, I like you, I really, the first thing I saw was the apology, which must mean I follow the right people who aren't <laughs> complaining thing about things right. like this. But, um, but it, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing that to ponder this, uh, the industry will always have these sort of fights. Um, because I think there's such a difference between number one and all other RPGs mm -hmm. and, and that's going to create jealousy. Uh, it's going to create comparisons and, 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 you know, people with hurt feelings and, and I get that, but, yeah. but the way forward is not, uh, to, to try to trash people's games. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's, th this has been around for three, four decades, uh, you know, ever mm -hmm. since D and D started and became so popular and then other games came out, it was, you know, it's always been a rallying cry of more independent game designers of why are you playing this game? Uh, well, because I like to play this game, right? Uh, it's, it's not a, for most people, it's not a life or death thing. Uh, you know, it's not like you're talking about d destroying the earth. Uh, you're, you're talking about, <laughs> we'll cover that later, Sean. <laughs> exactly. We'll cover that in two or three, uh, two or three, uh, topics, but, yeah. It, it's it's great to have the discussion of what do these games do? Mm -hmm. um, how how do they, what sort of experience do they provide you? And if you're looking for 
a very specific type of experience, maybe 5e, maybe D&D doesn't give you that experience. And so it's fine to have a discussion of, hey, look at this game. Check out what this game does. Yeah. But when it turns into, if you do not play this game, you are a horrible person, uh, then, then you know, we're stepping beyond the line of reason and rationality. Yeah. Um, so we're looking to be reasonable and rational here uh, at least 75% of the time. Uh, we get all our silliness out before we start recording. So, uh, <laughs> Most of it. Yeah. 75% so I, of it. I personally, uh, I tried to play the Doctor Who game. I It did not satisfy. I played with like one of the best game masters that I play with, with some of the, the most fun players that I play with. Mm-hmm. And we had a great time, despite the rules, not because of the rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I am interested in seeing what a 5e version of Doctor Who would look like. Now, 5e also delivers a very specific kind of experience based on the mechanics. Uh, so will that mesh with how Doctor Who is presented? I mm-hmm. I have doubts that it would provide this sort of experience that I personally am looking for. But that's why we have game designers. Right. We'll, we'll see what they come up with. And yeah. maybe they knock it out of the park and it's exactly what I want my Doctor Who experience to look like. I had to create a fate version for myself to run some Doctor Who games uh, mm. because that's what I wanted to do. Uh, I could so, see that being a good system for yeah. it. Yeah, mm-hmm. so we'll see how 5e does. Yeah, and, and, and any game that exists creates new opportunities and ideas, and seeing how people interpret 5e is also useful. I mean, that was very true in the D20 uh, era when, when companies like Crafty Games did possibly the best third edition D20 implementation, which was Spycraft. Um, that was super educational, right? And then you had other games like, say, Legend of the Five Rings, where adapting that to D20 was not a huge benefit and didn't seem to quite fit. And when I went right back to being the roll and keep version of Legend of the Five Rings, the game was stronger for it. So, you know, you get all of it. Um, Everybody should try, if they can, Mm -hmm. other RPGs because you learn from that. That's the best way to learn design. Um, And it creates great experiences, But I will say that, you know, when I play a different RPG with um, kind of my my typical home group, it is seldom that all of us love it. And it is often that some of us love it. And a good number of those who love it, love it for a short experience. And then are ready to move on to the next thing. And one of the things that D&D has is just an enduring quality, right? Where everybody had a pretty good time, good enough to play more of it. Yeah. And that doesn't happen as often with other RPGs. It's not always true, but but it's a, a thing that's true enough that I think is where why we are where we are with even people who are, say, hardcore gamers, right? Because it isn't something that, well, if you just try another RPG, you're never playing D&D. Or if you are an experienced game master or player, you will, you know, rise to some connoisseur level of RPG. No, D&D is a great game. It's super well made. Always has been. So, Yep. Uh we're going to get into a little into organized play, but not D&D organized play because Free League has announced the League of Free Agents organized play system. So Free League is a Swedish role-playing game company that has made a ton of very well-received games. Um, yeah. So this organized play system is not a surprise. Now, when we say organized play in this sense, we're not necessarily talking about a living campaign like, uh, like the Adventurers League. It's more like a convention program 
exactly. store program type thing. So the GMs are called free agents, and they can run free league games at conventions, online, or at game stores. Uh, these free agents gain access to forums where they can share tips, uh, receive newsletters and alerts, and then each year they will receive a convention PDF um, for each of most of the role-playing game titles that Free League produces. The, these free agents will also receive discounts on products via a web store. Uh, about $11 for each game session you run, you, you are discounted. Um, and to kick off the program, there are PDF scenarios for seven of Free League's role-playing games. So this yeah. is more like an ambassador program. Uh, than yeah. what we would normally think of as a, like a living campaign. But it's still it good me. to see them attempting it. Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me of the program that Catalyst uh, was running. I'm, I don't know if they still run it or not. But yeah, it's basically, you know, come be part of this GM community. And you sign up as GM. And, and there's no, you know, you must do X or anything. It's more that you'll get rewarded for continuing participation. And, and you have now what you need to run a short scenario, right? You can run Alien or you can run any of the other games here. And you've got a PDF that lets you run a fun convention experience. And that can be at a physical convention. It can be in a store. It can be at an online game day. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really cool. You know, they're giving something really nice. And then every time you run, you get $11 of discount or so, you know, something around that area, which is pretty good. Um, so I, I like how this is set up. I joined up because uh, if conventions start back up, I would love to run some right. uh, Alien, especially yeah. at convention areas. But But they have really good games. And yeah seven pdfs right there for just for signing up so check it out and, and what this shows is that the best sort of marketing for a tabletop role-playing game is to sit down and play the game and so this you know it places a monetary value on each game run and <laughs> organized play systems can get very expensive to run well and that's why uh something like the adventurers league is so valuable to wizards of the coast even if they don't recognize it sometimes because they are getting pretty, I mean, not for free, but for a very, very low cost to them. Ambassadors out there running games and turning, usually turning new players into repeat customers. So, you know, Wizards yeah. of the Coast has sometimes even accidentally <laughs> stumbled upon a great thing. Uh, yep. And other, I know a ton of other companies that have tried to replicate it, but it just the the cost, the startup cost, uh, the sunk cost is too much. It's hard yeah. to to bear with so little profit from role playing game books. Yeah. yeah, but it does help create community too. That's another angle, and, and you know, by getting everyone onto a forum that's special for the people who've joined. You can exchange tips and talk yeah. about things. This will be interesting to see how, how it plays out because there are so many different games. So someone could just be like, I'm here to run Symbarum. And yeah. that's what I'm focused on. And though the systems might often be very similar and you can talk about them in that to that extent, you, you might be focused in one area versus another. Mm -hmm. But either way, it's good. Bring people together. And I, I wish more companies would find a light way to do that, which right. I think this is somewhat light mm -hmm. um, to, to get people together talking about the game, creating energy and... Yeah. And encouraging each other to run things at the next convention that's in their town. Yeah. Now we will get to the NFT and blockchain portion of our show. Uh, Chaosium has suspended their plans, at least momentarily, for future NFTs. Uh, 
So it's only a couple of weekends ago where Casim explained that they supported NFTs. And then like three or four days later, they came back and said, uh, yeah, we don't anymore. Uh, they had an announcement uh, in, in their blog about why they started NFTs back in 2019. And they admitted that they really didn't understand what they were doing. It just <laughs> seemed like a way to make money. And it was different back then. And so now they are not going to move forward with any more. Which is good because they've got a partner that they do it with. And so they clearly had to have some negotiations with their partner to say, hey, mm -hmm. we, we, this is an untenable situation. We're not going to throw you under the bus. We're going to say, you know, oh, you're very good and working with clean energy alternatives, see, you know, uh, all this kind of mitigation, carbon mitigation strategies and, and yeah. be nice to you, but we're going to stop. And, and so yeah. good for them to do that. I'm sure that had to be a little painful, but, uh, but I think all the fans appreciated that. Yep. And Kickstarter has come out with some more information about their blockchain plans. And I'm going to let Teos take this one. Yeah, this was an interesting and hard read. So, I mean, the first thing which was good is after, you know, like a month of no response whatsoever and really bad form letter responses, um, they finally addressed, you know, all of these, all the outrage uh, about their black blockchain plans. But the way they did it was not a, they did not pull the chaosium, let's stop they said what we're going to do is we're going to create a new company the new company is going to realize these blockchain plans and will also somehow be a public benefit corporation <laughs> um and the other one will keep going the way it is so don't leave us because it's the kickstarter you always know and love we just have this other company that's going to use the blockchain um and then they went into you know why are we doing this because we, we've heard over and over again that you want to know why and the why didn't really, you know, they would say like our two main problems are projects that fail to fund and projects that sort of fail to deliver when they funded. And then they said, by distributing things, we invite other people to basically solve that problem for us. And that seemed really thin. Right. What I think, and, and some others have come up come with to the same conclusion. Um, John, who's a supporter of ours, was on this list is that what what seems to be the problem is Kickstarter doesn't like the amount of money it's getting per project. And Stripe takes a, a big chunk of the, the payment fees, all of which Kickstarter has to then give right. to Stripe. And so it, this almost sounds like, hey, what if we gave you a tiny, tiny amount of money and in exchange you take all of these Stripe fees that are bigger than what we give you? Right. And I, I, why would somebody want to do that? I mean, there are, you know, you can trick people into this sort of stuff, especially when you make it all complicated and convoluted, but that's almost what it sounds like. We're going to give you a tiny percentage so you can get rid of a large percentage from us. I, you don't need blockchain to do that. That's uh... right. <laughs> so it was very interesting. And there was a, um, comicsbeat.com. We've got all these articles linked in, in the show notes, but comicsbeat.com had a, an actual interview. The first interview with anybody from Kickstarter was the, the chief operating officer, COO, and he, at one point, I, I did not expect this. You're reading this and it sounds like a normal interview. Right. And and the COO says, well, well, due to the technology, you know, this is the way forward. And the person hits right back with this. Well, there are these five different ways you could do it instead. And, and it goes into good technical detail about other options. And the COO has to admit, well, I, I don't know. I don't have an answer for why we're not 
doing that and why we're doing blockchain instead. Right. So again, you know, at the end of the day, there's no proof for why Kickstarter is going down this way when there are other ways to do it. It's confusing. And I think, you know, for every individual, it comes down to do you like Kickstarter having, you know, keeping its old site, but still moving forward with this other one. Um, the other thing that came out in the interview was they have an advisory board that they're going to form to give them feedback. And so the interviewer, he said, well, what if the advisory board says stop? They're like, well, you know, we would, uh, you know, work within the, it was a lot of. Right. Right. <laughs> did not say, oh yeah, we'll stop if the advisory yeah. board says stop. In other words, if we can make more money, uh, even if it is shady, even if it eats up a ton of yeah. resources we're going to do it anyway so which yeah. is really strange because they're technically a public benefit corporation and so none of this makes any sense to me but uh but there it is yep so that that was our nft blockchain portion of our news and now <laughs> last but not least roll 20 is doing something that should make a lot of people happy uh roll 20 is now allowing uh the sharing of compendiums so if you own a book you can share it for free with your friends um, if, if they're in your games. Uh, free users can share their purchase compendiums with one active game with up to five players. Uh, plus, uh, Roll20 Plus can share three games of 10 players each. And pro users of Roll20 can share uh, resources with up to five games of 15 players each. So this is something that D&D Beyond already does, uh, mm -hmm. I know, and I know that my players appreciate it. And so if you're a pro user of World 20 and you have five games with 15 players in each game, I'm not great at math, but that's 75 players uh, that can get access to the things that you own if they're in your campaign. Yeah, um, seems really nice, really reasonable. Good call. Mm -hmm. I like it. And that is our news. So we will now jump directly into our main topic, which is, what is our main topic? It is updating old adventures. And so why are we doing this? Well, we, we had two listeners. Uh, Jean Lorbert first asked, uh, is Watsi supporting the length of adventure that most groups play? If not, does that lead to suboptimal engagement? And is there reason to improve? Um, you know, how do we turn these big, long published adventures into one, five or 10 session versions? Uh, then we had another uh, person tweet to us, uh, Planagia, who asked, as you complete uh, Fizz Bands, I'd love it if you would go back through some of your favorite adventures from other editions. Could you talk about their design, what made them great, and how you would up them to update them to 5e? So that's what we started doing last week, talking about you know older editions, adventures, why they might be slightly different than new adventures, and you know getting into some of that. Uh, based on that discussion, we heard from a few people. Uh, Hyperlexic said that enjoyed your discussion of the change in adventure design since uh, OD&D first edition. I think another impact is the influence of other games, both in terms of techniques and play style and culture, which is absolutely true and probably mm -hmm. something that we will talk about as we move forward. And uh, Lucas Cockrum said, uh, I've done a lot of that in the last couple of years, publishing two E to 5E conversions on the DMs Guild. 
<laughs> and uh, they go through a few thoughts about those conversions. Like there's a lot of magic in 2E adventures that may upset <laughs> the balance of your 5E adventure. <laughs> so that's, and you know, a few things uh, that Lucas learned from those conversions on the DMs Guild. So thank you, uh, Hyperlexic, and thank you, Lucas, for, for listening and for chiming in. And hopefully we will incorporate some of your feedback into our discussion going forward. So we talked last time about, you know, some of the, the rules, some of the cultural uh, shifts that we've seen over the years and why that may change adventures. So next we're going to talk about motivation. Uh, why go back and take these old adventures and turn them into 5e adventures for your groups? Well, Teos is going to tell us exactly why. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so one of them is that there you have these you actually have some really amazing experiences that are out there um, that are worth tapping back into, right? And we mentioned a little bit of this last time, but it and it's not such a hard amount of work. Like uh, running a, a especially 1E and 2E, a number of these are really quite easy to convert without a lot of conversion. Um, the more simpler mundane they are in concept, the more low level, the easier it is. Mm -hmm. uh, because things like skeletons and zombies and, uh, you know, some side of small ooze and goblins and kobolds, those all tend to be low-level adventure uh, uh, threats. And so converting them is not particularly hard. Usually the monster manual in 5e is a fairly similar CR. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, but, but it can be really a neat experience, and you can often run them fairly quickly. Like, you know, if you run Tomb of Horrors, the, the original... You can run that in one or two sessions, short gaming sessions. Uh, you might actually die a lot earlier, but, uh, <laughs> but if you make it all the way. Um, you may have to have some character creation sessions right. in between your sessions. And, and I did that for 5e. And, and when I did it, um, I think there was a, a TPK situation. And when we just hand waved it so everybody could get the rest of the experience. Or, or maybe they hit a dead end. I forget what it was. It might have been that they hit a dead end. I think when they hit one of the false tombs and they're like, cool, we won and we're at, we're done. And I'm like, cool. Now let's pretend that you didn't conclude that and you yeah. kept going <laughs> and yeah. found the secret door that you and missed. actually found. Yeah. Right. Um, so we that way we had the full experience and it was a lot of fun. Yeah. So the one thing to be wary of, and we talked about last time, is differences in play styles. Uh, and we'll talk about this when we go through our first uh, conversion uh, later in the episode. But with 1E, 2E, a lot of the adventures match the play style of the time, which was many, many smaller combats that didn't take quite as long uh, because mm -hmm. the rules were, a, at lower levels especially, a bit more compact. You didn't have a lot of choice as the fighter about what you were going to do. Uh, or any class whatsoever, even the even the wizard. It's like, you've got these two spells, cast one or the other, and then uh, start throwing daggers or shooting your crossbow, right? So or darts or darts, right? Uh, so there wasn't a lot of choice in play. It was more roll the die once. If you hit, yeah, great. Roll the damage. If you miss, next. And you know it it went pretty quickly, so you could have a lot more combats, and there was a lot more decision making in terms of your work day. Do we stop now or do we try to rest? Are we in a position where we can rest? If so, great, we'll do it. If not, we might have to deal with some wandering monsters before we can rest, right? All of those things were a big part of the game. 
that are sort of not there in most games for 5e. Um, I recall um, yeah. running Temple of Elemental Evil. There was a funny thing where we we get to the temple. I was running the game, but they so they get to the temple and they go into like one room. And they're very excited, and it was Sturges. Mm-hmm. And at the end of that combat, they're like, "We need to go back to town." Yeah. So they go back to town, and you know, I come up with some like, "Okay, here's what happens when you're in the town," because trying to make the most out of the town experience. Right. And they're like, "Okay, great." You know, we had a little fun there role playing. Now let's go back to the temple. And they run into just a random encounter of wolves. The wolves tear them apart. Right. So they're like, okay, let's go back to town. I'm like, ah, oh, crap. I got to think of another thing that happens in the town to keep the town interesting. Right. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that happened back then a lot. <laughs> right. And, you know, a lot of groups wouldn't even bother with the, t- the role playing in town, right? You'd go back. You'd be, it would take 20 seconds. It'd be, okay, you rest. You're at full hit points. Do you want to change your spells? No. Okay, here we go. Well, um, and and one thing that's changed enormously is healing. Yes. So if you did not have clerical healing, you healed like a hit point a day, a week. It was yeah. something horrible. Um, and, and under specific situations that you needed to, it had to all be set up. So non-magical healing was extremely slow. Right. And if you had to cleric, well, then they just dumped all their spell slots. But it was still some number of days would probably go by for all right. of this healing to happen, depending on how badly hurt you were. Uh, which, yeah, then you, you would just do a lot of hand-waving to say, yeah. and five days pass, and now you're on the road again with your yeah. full spell slots back. And, yep. you know. and in third edition, they, they, you still had that same problem. Uh, it was, how did we fix it? Wands of cure wounds, right? Cure light wound wands. Boom, 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 yeah. boom, 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 boom. Go through 50 charges and then break the wand and move on. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, you know, that was the way around the rules that made the, the fiction less fun, uh, the stories that you're creating less fun. Let's throw a wand in there to fix that. Uh, so, you know, that's one thing, that's a difference in all the editions. So if you're, if you're uh, converting a, a, an edition that had those sort of funky rules that made things a little weird, uh, you will have to keep that in mind if you just try to plop down an adventure and run it cold. Um, yeah, and with the longer adventures or the ones that you think will be more threatening that'll that'll result in this sort of resting thing, that's an important consideration if you're doing it as a one shot, right? Because mm-hmm. one of the reasons, one of your motivations for for running an old classic adventure can speak to Jean's question about, um, you know, are five year adventures too long? Well, you know, why don't I just run this one shot experience? And that's entirely possible, but you need to keep in mind these sort of things like like what, how the resting used to work and all of this and whether that will be a problem if you convert it straight up, right? If you have that many hobgoblins and bugbearers and ogres and, you know, whatever, then the, the, they're going to run out of hit points mm-hmm. and that creates a resting situation and maybe they run into wandering, wandering monsters. And so you may want to change that up and, and remove some creatures and some rooms and so on so they get the heart of the experience rather than the literal recreation of it. Okay. So my question for you is then, what if I don't want to run it as a one shot? What if I want to bring it into an existing campaign because it, for the story will fit nicely if I make a few tweaks? Yeah, and, and maybe it's worth pausing here and saying that, you know, the 5e adventures are heavily influenced by those adventure paths mm-hmm. that came out in uh, Dragon and Dungeon Magazine, um, which was owned by Wizards but written by Paizo towards the end of the cycle. And they created these really big, long, meaty paths. 
And when this came out, it was so revolutionary that it was sort of like, wizards, why would you ever do anything other than this? You know, you are morons if you don't create these types of experiences. Right. And in fact, when Paizo began really doing adventure paths and D&D had sort of shorter adventures, they were criticized for it, right? For not doing the obvious big, meaty adventure paths. Right. Which aren't necessarily everyone's cup of tea. Right. And, you know, have some problems of their own to to try to do. And and that's something that we've seen since, especially with, with the advent of third edition, I think we talked about this last time, is different length adventures. You know, everything from the large box set mega campaigns like Undermountain uh, to, you know, adventure paths to four-hour, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, organized play adventures to one-hour adventures to, you know, mini treks from one-pagers from from dragon or dungeon magazine right and all of those are perfectly fine ways to present games depending on how you want to put them together to either make a campaign or just to play it as a one shot yeah and, and when it looks at you know when you look to create an ongoing campaign one one example you can look at is what was done for the ghosts of salt marsh which was to take a series of old uk adventures and then there were these expansion pieces that were uh, uh, adventures that appeared in Dungeon Magazine. And you could string those all together to make essentially a campaign. And sometimes the connection's a little loose, right? And so the 5e book in places patches that. In some places, it just leaves it warts and all the way it was back in the day. Yeah. Um, and so you end up with a campaign. And that is something that most of us did back then, right? We would run a particular series of adventures that was loosely connected. And even the ones that really were connected could be kind of loose in in their connection, not heavy on the story and plot. Um, And then you'd throw the next series onto it, right? So you would do some of them were like, say, against the giants and um, the vault of the drow. You know, there was a connection there that that played in Mm -hmm. um, loosely. And then you would say, okay, we did that. What do we do next? And you'd run another series that might be connected. And then you might right. throw a one shot in the middle too. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, all of that information, all of those adventures, whether one shots or loosely tied together or tightly tied together are there for your uh, picking over and, and using in, in any way you want. Yeah. Uh, and Sean, just to mention the, you know, the other thing you can do instead of sort of taking a big sort of arc or pieces and putting them together is you can take individual pieces and do into whatever you're homebrewing, right? So like there are parts of adventures that I really love, like um, uh, Oasis of the White Palm and Pharaoh has this sort of like falling trap where when you fall enough, you fall back to the top. It's sort of a loop fall. And that's a kind of neat puzzle kind of trap where players think about it. And I've put that in many different places in my home campaigns over time. Um, or, you know, the inner chamber idea from the Lost Caverns of Sojkanth. We have to sort of unlock all these doors and then finally you can get into the center. You know, that is a fun idea to sort of mimic and riff off of. So a lot of these things you can just take out of, you know, second adventure, second edition adventure, Dead Gods has some incredible mind-blowing ideas. But you may want not want the entire thing. You may just want to take some of it and put it together. Yeah. Um, the studying of the Hill Giant Chief. From against the giants, right? Just that part, just mm-hmm. two of the areas uh, that are in Keep on the Borderlands, Caves of Chaos, right? That can be a piece that you just lift and drop into your campaign, and then you move on to whatever else you're creating. Yeah, and the reason that is is because adventures are built on a building block called encounters. 
and those encounters have different uh, different reasons for being. There's the game mechanical portion of it, and then there's the story portion. So you can take a cool mechanical encounter, pull it out, put a different story on top of it, and it yeah. still works just as well as it did in first edition or second edition for your 5e game. And, and you can often really change the dynamics based on the edition. Like in the Adventure A1, there is a fight that you do over these cages where essentially the floor is all just cubes of the top of the cages. Mm-hmm. And you're fighting these like insectoid creatures trying to balance on these narrow beams. And that's a really fun idea. And there've been a couple of different times that I've run that in some way mm-hmm. uh, that can be really fun, right? And based on the additions, you have different, I mean, there were no skills when the adventure first existed. Right. And so, you know, a lot of those things you, you modernize depending on what your edition is. Mm-hmm. So let's actually go through the process of looking at an old adventure and how we might use it for fifth edition, how we might update it. Um, and we'll just sort of riff on it as we go. And the adventure that I've chose first was the village of Hamlin. Um, awesome. If you've been playing since first edition days, you've probably not only played the village of Hamlet, you may have memorized the village of Hamlet. Um, it's been updated over and over again in official products since first edition uh, from the you know, temple of elemental evil, redid it a bit. Um, the return to the Temple of Elemental Evil, there were some standalone 4E uh, products that updated it to, uh, updated the Village of Hamlet Adventure to fourth edition. So it's been around, it's been out there, and it's a, it taught a lot of game developers and DMs how to create an adventure, which is give a setting that um, the people, the players will care about, and then give an adventure that they can go on, returning to the settings town repeatedly. And that's what it is. As the summary is you arrive in a village, you hear about this nearby moat house, you explore its crumbling towers and rooms, you realize that there's a dungeon below it, uh, defeat the bandits and the other creatures, then you learn that it is part of a larger threat that involves this nearby town of Nulb, and a more distant temple of elemental evil, which has a strong history in the region. Uh, any anything else to say before we delve into the the text itself? No, uh, though I want to say when it comes to the text itself, one of the hilarious dated parts is that you are greeted by an introduction section that's just full of words and like all this information and dressing and you, you know, you read for pages and then you get to an enormous box text for the players. And then like the descriptions of like every single farm cottage and what they have under the floorboards. And (laughs) there's a lot here that when you read it, you go, Oh yeah, this is an older style of adventure design. Yeah. I mean, it playing back then as a, as a, you know, tween, it was super exciting to read this. Yeah, it's like you you approach this town, you are poorly mounted, badly equipped. You know, it sort of tells you what your character is and who they are and why they're doing this. And we would chafe against that now because, you know, we we're adventuring for our own reasons. You're not telling me why I'm adventuring. Right. I have my own personality. I have my own reason for being here. I want a big backstory and all that's cool and all that's fine. Uh, 
but we didn't think about it in that way back then right it was just get the treasure and what can we do with it when we uh find it and level up how how much more powerful can we get and and that captures it very well um, yeah in this so as but, teo said there's a lot of town description uh, yeah can i just say about the town sean like it, it, because i made fun of it i feel like i also have to say that it isn't all, all bad no in fact there are aspects of what is in this town that's super cool like the this is a greyhawk adventure and so there are elements of the old faith here that are very interesting to hear about um the the temple of saint cuthbert has sort of these interesting angles based on its religion um there are spies in town both good and bad mm-hmm. um there is a lot here that a dm can work with that makes the town super fun mm-hmm. if you can take the time and the skill to to run it right yeah it, it's very true it's very true it gives it's like a recipe without the actual instructions of how to put all the ingredients together uh and all the ingredients are great and they smell good and they taste great uh you just have to have the experience of putting it all together, cooking it once. You know, it may not taste great the first time, but you you ask your players, you know, too much garlic, yeah, <laughs> then cook it again, and and that's you know that's uh, how how you how you ran these adventures back then. Yeah, and right. I've I've played Temple of Elemental Evil once, and I've run it I think four times. Once for D and D next, once for Thirteenth Age, and twice with Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, yeah. and 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 that's not counting like the four E Moat House or other things like that that I ran. And each time, completely different because oh, yeah. I there's so much here to use that you 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 are a different person each time you use this, and so it comes out differently, right? Mm-hmm. And your group is different. Yeah. So if you excise all of the introductory content, all of the town description all of the detailed descriptions of the castle that's being built uh, by the higher level adventurers who maybe someday you will be as good as them. Um, Right. There's almost more description of this castle that you may not ever go to than there is of the actual dungeon itself. Because if you carve everything away, the text of the boat house portion of the adventure, the actual dungeon of Dungeons and Dragons is less than four and a half pages. And that includes 35 different areas that are described. So, you know, you're averaging like eight or nine uh, locations per page, which is quite a bit. And uh, so of those areas, those 35 areas, 17 of them have combats, traps, or both. Uh, So... If you compare that to like a, a fifth edition four hour adventure, you may have you know, three or four combats, traps, something in a four hour session. So there's 17 here, which shows that they crammed more combat into uh, the experience back in those days. Yeah, and there's so much I love about this. Like, just even the random encounter table, um, instead of saying things like no result, it has footsteps, which yeah. turn out to be the party's own, uh, a trick of echoes or a scraping noise from shifting materials overhead. Right. It's really, there's there's so much here that's just fantastic. Yeah. I, I, every time I read this, I go, oh, yeah, I need to do that next time I design something. This is great. Exactly. Exactly. 
Uh, so there are classic, some classic experiences that if you played it, you'll probably remember it. Uh, what were some for you, Teos? Oh, I mean, being swallowed by a giant frog before you even get to the front gates because there are these two pools and they lash out with their tongues and chomp you down. Oh, good grief. That is uh, fun. I got to say, when I last ran this, my group came away with one take-home message, and that is Gary Gygax likes to put treasure inside of the stomach of things. Mm -hmm. So, for example, here with the frogs, you know, one of them has swallowed an amethyst worth 100 gold. Right. Right. Like, and then later you find a lizard that has a magic shield in its stomach and it just, it just keeps going on. Like, and by the end of it, everybody was eviscerating everything to find where, what is this swallowed? Yeah. And I didn't mention this about the town, but like random militiamen or, you know, the random baker or the random brewmaster has like good magic items. It's like rings of invisibility and plus two swords and, you know, all of these things. And as soon as you give treasure to any everyone, your players are going to read the adventure and they're going to be like, okay, we want that Murder. two plus two sword. Uh, yeah. How are we going to get that? Well, there's one way to get treasure. Rob the baker. Murder yeah. the baker. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, it's just, it's funny. Uh, be wary of that. But, yeah, so there are some classic experiences back then. Um, I mean, one for me that I, I remember from the very first time I played through this, being extremely young when this happened, green slime mm-hmm. falling as you go down to the dungeon level. Uh, and and green slime back then was this mechanic of you must scrape it away or you will die. Mm-hmm. And everything it's touching is just destroyed. Right. And whatever you scrape it with is destroyed. So it's literally those things where the DM's like, what do you do? And you're like, uh... Uh, I scrape it away with my shield. Cool. So you're able to get it off of you. Oh, now your shield's gone too. So you've lost your shield and your armor, but you are alive. Right. And it all happened in a matter of seconds, and you're just like breathing heavy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, what just happened? Or it's like, well, I don't want to lose my equipment, so I'll burn it off. Okay, you take, uh, you know, 5d6 fire damage. Oh, back then it was just damage. Uh, and oh, what? You only have four hit points, first level wizard? Uh, well... <laughs> I guess uh, I guess the green slime <laughs> didn't kill you. Your friend who burned it off, you did. Yeah. So, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so oozes are something that over time have changed from monsters to, well, from traps to monsters to yeah. environmental effects to traps to monsters again uh, over and over. So uh, what if what if we want to play this as a one-shot experience, Teos? What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I think that's where you want to, um, you know, remove a few things and uh, and 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 focus the experience a bit. But this is not a huge area, so it can work. Um, and you know, it, as we said before, a lot of the monsters are are going to work as written, mm-hmm. and how closely you monitor things is up to you. If and and the kind of DM you are, so. You know, there might be six zombies in a room and you might say, eh, sounds fine. And you just run it the way it's written. And you may find that that's a little hard. And so maybe you shave some hit points off the zombies and the party prevails, which is what should have happened in the original version. Or you might say, hey, let me take a look at the actual encounter balance of this. Oh, six zombies is 100 XP over deadly. 
So maybe I'll go with four zombies, which is a hard challenge, and that's going to work better. Or fewer, because I want it to be a medium challenge. This is not supposed to be a super meaty encounter. But that's kind of up to you, depending on your style and your approach and how comfortable you are with fixing things on the fly. Um, You noted giant frogs uh, are a little different. (laughs) Yeah. The giant frogs, there are six of them in the original adventure for first edition. Um, they're CR1 monsters now, uh, giant toads. So six CR1 uh, monsters against the first level party. Probably not going to go well for the party. Yeah. Um, and the other thing to remember is, like I said, first edition had many more fights, smaller and uh, more frequent. So if you do that sort of want to run that sort of game, you don't want hard fights, right? Yeah. You want to lean into that. Combats may only take a round or two, and characters may only get hit once or not at all in a in a fight, but the number of fights will slowly uh, catch up to them as they yeah. continue through and through and through. So just keep that in mind if you're in the mode of, you know, three hard fights in a or three hard or harder fights in in a four hour game. Uh, you're going to want to not do that. Or right. if you do that here, you're going to have to change the pacing. You're going to have to change everything up to make it fit that style. And and it's worth noting two really important things. One is a lot of adventures as written for AD&D and basic w- would say something like six to 11 characters of mm-hmm. levels, blah, blah, blah. Six to 11 characters. So we were often playing with two characters each. Yep. Or the DM would dumb it down a bit because it was just so hard if you had, you know, say a party of five. So the numbers of of monsters are based on that idea that everybody's bringing a bunch. Um, Also, characters are disposable. So, you know, in the Temple of Elemental Evil, one of my favorite characters I'd ever made as a kid, you know, looks in a tower, the giant spider attacks, bites, I fail my poison check and i die yeah and that was the end of that character there's no coming back from that you're just dead end of story and so so it was disposable heroes was a concept rather than the idea that you should prevail through things an example of this is in the moat house there are a whole bunch of bandits yep and they're kind of in one area and so you may get into a battle that quickly leads to all these brigands going up against you what we did we were able to find one and charm it and we convinced our DM to go along with our plan, and we pretended to be uh, sent by their leaders to interview them. And we went into the boss's room and held interviews. And what we would do is one person would, a brigand would come in, we'd knock them on the head and kill them, mm-hmm. very low hit points, so it was easy to do, stuff their body behind the bed. And at some point, the DM ruled that the top of the pile of bodies was so high that that guy goes, wait a minute, and the fight breaks out, and the rest of us took us on. Right. So That yeah. kind of creativity happened, right? Like a yeah, lot. I, I want to actually talk more about that, because that, that's a great thing. Uh, there are nine, uh, this area is described as brigands. There are nine, quote, unquote, normal men, and a second-level fighter leader holed up in this area. And it gives a list of them. And they each have different armor, different weapons, different armor classes, and different hit points. Uh, so all nine, <laughs> all nine yeah. of these brigands are all slightly different, uh, which you know we wouldn't do these days, right? There'd be like one one leader, and then 
eight brigands. But it says something. It says this: a pair of brigands is fifty percent likely to have been at location three, thus seeing the party approach and having given a warning to the group. Uh, another watcher appears appears out the escape route, uh, which is a, another way into and out of the moat house. So it's not. There's no. Uh, investigation checks. There's no perception checks, right? It's 50% chance they saw you coming, and boy, oh boy, are you in trouble now. And and that's because skills didn't exist. Exactly. So so when you convert, you want to think, well, all these percent chances, they probably need to be skill checks, and how do I want to set that up? Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's something, and it doesn't really give a heck of a lot of motivation. It doesn't really tell you at the very end of the encounter, um, it tells you they are totally unaware of the secret door and the staircase down to the dungeons. So they are just brigands using this area as a staging ground and a hideout. They don't know of all the hinky, evil stuff going on underneath. Um, but other than that, it really doesn't say what their motivations are. It doesn't give you much more information about them. There's like... 20 lines of what their treasure is uh, down to each <laughs> electrum, gold, silver, copper, uh, but you know, doesn't really talk about plot much. Uh, so that's just you know, one I, other it brings thing. Back memories. I remember this crystal flagon where the DM's like, how are you protecting that? And I'm like, oh, God, yeah. How do I protect this crystal flagon so it doesn't break when we're right. carrying it around? Right? And yeah. I'm sure it broke at some point because they were like, wait, you fell? You know, yeah, let's roll yeah. percentile dice. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> but so, so if you're updating it, either for your own campaign or even as a one shot, you know, there's a missed opportunity there to give some personality to the bandits, even if it's the bandit leader or just one of the bandits that maybe they capture, uh, that the PCs capture to know something, to have some information. It doesn't have to be giving away the whole game, but it, you know, something that rather than having a, a perception check for them to find the hidden door, have this uh, bandit brigand say, oh, yeah, I noticed the other day that this door was open. I just closed it, and I'm scared of where it led to, and I didn't tell anybody about it. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, and I mean, yeah. I think there's that question of, does it really make sense for these to be completely disconnected to what's going right. down below? Is the story right. better that way? I think these days, if that were the case, then there would be sort of like what you're talking about, this whole like there's some something weird going on. We hear noises down below, right. but we're not sure what's going on. Something that ties it together and explains that they are not connected to whatever threat you're looking for or that there's a secondary threat. Um or creates that connection and, you know, we were employed by someone. We don't know who they are. They're somewhere down below. You know, we're, we don't ask questions, but we're here's what we're told to do, right? Something yeah. that, that gives you that story angle and, and paints that narrative over time. Yeah. So what about the narrative of this adventure? What, what comes to mind for you? Well, you know, DM David talked about the village of Hamlet as, as the, you come into the, the town and it's just this vague sort of mm-hmm. evil off in this direction um, and where to go. There's, there's no obvious town story. There are a lot of little stories and in individual locations, which the DM may draw upon, but it's, it's sort of build your own out of part adventure, right? Yeah. Um, and depending on who you talk to it, 
the character is slightly different. And, and it may be very directionless, which can lead to things like what we did when we were young, which was we, you just start robbing the baker uh, and murdering the town until the high-level guys show up, which literally are in town probably to prevent such shenanigans, right? Exactly, yep. Um, and, and so that's where we can do uh, – we can change that up. So, like, you might walk into town – and immediately greeted by someone who says, oh, are you here for the meeting that's taking place in the inn? Mm -hmm. Well, what meeting, say the characters? And, right. oh, well, you know, there's, there's a, a lot of outrage going on. There's, you know, you better run straight there. Oh, okay, we're interested. We go in there. Right. And then, hey, there have been some disappearances. Mm -hmm. And yeah. they're calling for action. Who could possibly help this town, right? And, oh, you know, we'll help. Oh, good. Go talk to the priest who will... Uh, help you for your voyage and the priest gives you holy water tells you some information on the history of the area and off you go right that kind of setup can can start the adventure off better i think yeah yeah there there definitely needs to be i think more more direction given mm -hmm. uh, and that that sort of leads i think to a pacing and story beat uh discussion that we should have mm -hmm. uh because when this adventure was written, we lived in a time where play tended to go on in long sessions with lots of action, no expectation of, okay, we need to finish the story in an hour or four hours. <laughs> it was just, we'll, we'll stop when it makes sense to stop. It could be in the middle of a battle. We don't know. Uh, it didn't necessarily end with what we're used to, like because of Netflix and because of streaming. It's like, an hour passes and there's a big reveal and then, okay, next to, you know, there's this sense of storytelling, uh, yeah. wasn't yeah. as strong then. So if, if we are now used to as a society, this sense of wrapping things up where things make sense, then you need to keep that in mind and it's not accounted for in these adventures. Um, so breaking it down into playable chunks, um, with the expectation of a beginning, a middle, and an end for each session is not easy, especially when you throw player choice into the... It's like, well, if they went in this direction, I could have a nice hour-long session, quit on a high note, and then come back next time. But if they go off in this other direction, that's like a seven-room dungeon, uh, and <laughs> we're at you know 45 minutes of an hour already. Um, yeah. So it, it takes work, and it takes... Uh, you know, some craft in the sense of the DM arranging things in a way that fits this mold. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, if you were to look at this as a, if someone were to say, Hey, design the moat house for fifth edition to be a one shot experience, you'd probably skip the town altogether mm -hmm. because of time. And right. you would start them, you know, outside the moat house. Right, right is, is the most likely thing. If you wanted the town, you would have to have a really strong uh, piece that that mm -hmm. directs you to get involved and and move on out. Right, like um, maybe you have a random encounter leading to the town where a caravan or a wagon's being attacked by some brigands, mm -hmm. and then you get to town and find that they're outraged about all these right. attacks, and you quickly go on to the moat house. But even then, yeah. you've just used up valuable time. So you, now your moat house is smaller. So that's right. where you, you think about what is the story and how do I want those beats to move around yeah. to craft that. It, it goes back to like encounters as a game mechanic versus encounters as a storytelling tool. Yeah. Uh, 
it used to be that you would need encounters in the game not to tell the story but to give the experience points that the characters yeah. would need uh, <laughs> or to give them the, the treasure that they would need uh, and we're getting sort of out of that so we can focus more about encounters to fit yes still needing to fit game mechanically but also making sure that the encounters that you run serve the larger story and yeah. so I sat down, I'm like, okay, if I had to do like, if I had to run Village of Hamlet one hour at a time and having each hour be its own separate thing with its own beginning and end, like the Indian Encounters did. Yeah. Right? How would yeah. I do that? And so this sort of plays on what Teos was saying. For session one, I'd have the players come into town, meet a couple of the locals, uh, but have a bandit be brought into town, captured uh, from a, a merchant caravan that that the bandit had been attacking. Um, and then when the players go to see the bandit, maybe they're asked to question the bandit. Maybe they just are automatically drawn there. Uh, other bandits arrive to try to break him or her out. Awesome. Yeah. So, okay. So you've, you've introduced the town. Here's your combat, introducing the bandits as a problem. Have, have the other bandits come to town. You've got the fight. Hopefully they win. Now the bandits have clues on them, or if questioned, lead to the moat house. Yes. So you've got a little role playing at the start. You've got a combat. Second session. Now that the characters have info on the bandits, the town leaders say, "Could you go investigate?" Now you can have like a, an exploration session with maybe a combat in there as well. Um, yeah, and I think that's really important because one of the things we often say is, "This land is dangerous." Right. Or it's wild. And you need to back that up. And that's why you'll see in a lot of adventures, you know, the, the wandering monster table or in more modern ones, the thing that happens on the way there, because it establishes that as a yep. reality. Yep. The world is dangerous. And whatever you choose is, 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 a, is an envoy for that story, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever they encounter characterizes the nature of those dangers. Is it spiders with webs like in Lord of the Rings? Is right. it more brigands? Is it wolves? What is it? Yeah. And it also sets up if you have a hard time just getting to the moat house, that makes it harder for you as a character to say, well, let's just run back to town right. because it's dangerous just to run back to town. Yeah. Uh, for session three, I would do the top level of the moat house with those bandits, uh, plus the couple other smaller encounters with spiders and uh, frogs. Wizard. Well, I, I do the frogs in session two because that's a good place mm -hmm. to end there. Right before you go into the mountains. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, do that. And uh, at the end of session three, after you've cleared out that top level, that's when you learn, oh, there's another level below. And then with the fourth session, you know, then you could start delving into that. But what you can do is if you break things down into hour-long sessions, you can then say, well, if I have four hours, I can take sessions one, two, and three, <laughs> put those together, maybe expand the role-playing a bit, uh, expand the investigation of the moat house the outer portion of it make that a little bit more of a session and i have a nice four-hour session that still ends at a high spot so that's yeah. why breaking it down uh into like one hour two hour four hour uh make sure that you're hitting all the pillars right exploration mm -hmm. role-playing and uh combat and ending on that high note so the players are super enthused to come back next time uh, to get to the bottom of the next mystery, right? Oh, we found the bandits, but what? What's down there? Da, da, da. Yeah. Next time. Yep. 
And I like that by breaking this down, and this is why I think it's very important when you're designing something, not just converting something, when you're designing something to think about the time that all of your different chapters or scenes take, mm -hmm. because that is the answer as to what the experience is that you're creating. Mm -hmm. And if all of your time is spent in the thing that is not important to you and you don't think is important to the storytelling of it, then that's misallocated, right? Um, and, and what I always like asking myself at the end of, of what I'm creating, or as I'm, as I've got that shell of what will take place is what's the story that the players are going to tell, you know, to someone about this fun experience they had. And, and it, it'll have to do with that timing, right? Uh, if, if they're going to tell a story about the end and the end is really short, well, that's not why, why is that the case? Right? So we, we want that to match up with, with it and feel like a good narrative. And the way you've broken this down here, I can imagine this being a fun story to tell. First we went into town and here's what was going on. And then, you know, they tried to spring him out, but we stopped them when we learned about the moat house and we headed there and this thing happened on the way there. And then inside we found this and then the secret level below and here's what happened and here's how it ended in a climactic battle. Mm -hmm. Like that's what you want people saying when they right. experience something you created or updated. Right. You don't want the, we went to every farmhouse in, in the town and, you know, found this and found this and found this, but nothing really moved the story forward. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, you know, you want to present the, those NPCs that are going to be important to the story, plus a couple that aren't just mm -hmm. so the players, you know, get a feel for the town as a whole and don't, automatically metagame and say, oh, okay, if we met this person, that's either going to be someone who gives us something later or turns out to be a bad guy later. Um, yeah. And the beauty of that town, right? The, the importance of the town is in establishing the why you're doing this so that it isn't just hack and slash, right? Because the town is vulnerable. You are the heroes. And if you met different NPCs, you care about them even just a little bit that's significant and you're doing it for them right um that that's that's creates that important motivation that is easy to to hand wave when you're designing but it'll be the difference between a really uh memorable experience and one that isn't if you have that town experience even shortened that creates that yeah i'm doing it for you know i, I swore to the farmer that i would uh, find out what happened to their kid, or I right. told the priest that I would honor St. Cuthbert and bring justice to the bandits, right? Whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. And that's another thing that speaking of NPCs, there are a lot of NPCs in this adventure that are willing or even longing to travel with the characters, uh, for various reasons, right? Some are spies, some are spies for the good guys. Some are spies for the bad guys. Uh, some just want, treasure some want to take the character's treasure uh so <laughs> be careful uh, if you've played out of the abyss you know be careful with the number of npcs that you let go with the characters in in first edition it was a little more important because of the you know deadly nature of of the games uh it was nice to have an extra body around to take a shot or two or to hand to the character when they're hand to the player when their character dies. It's like, okay, you're playing Fernaka Ferd now. Uh, <laughs> here you go for the rest mm -hmm. of the session. Uh, it's not as important uh, now for fifth edition uh, rules wise, you know, uh, strength wise, deadliness wise, uh, but it can still be a good tool 
to have these NPCs around to use them in a variety of ways uh, yep. later. Yeah, that's a good point. So, and what about magic items and rewards? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I already mentioned that like every farmer seemed to have <laughs> at least a plus one dagger stuck somewhere. Yeah. Uh, but I, I didn't, I never really thought too much about the magic items um, in the adventure because they're so easy to just leave out. Uh, it's to, true. To, to swap out. Uh, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing there that's, I can think of off the top of my head that's important to the story. What I, what I would think of, what I might say here, Sean, is that magic items back then were quite random in nature. Mm -hmm. And even when they were allocated by, you know, like prescribed, here's what they, you get. Whether that had a big impact in play was not something you knew mm -hmm. uh, going in. Uh, obviously, plus one, that's great. But, um, but a, a, say, a miscellaneous magic item, you didn't know whether that was going to be strong and used all the time or just fun. Um, and whereas today's editions are much more, uh, it's clear when you look at it, oh, this is going to have a big impact. Right. And so if you try to just convert across, you might actually be putting in things that have really strong impact because sure. there often is a lot of possible magic. And a lot of it is because we wouldn't find all of it. Mm -hmm. And so if you chain sure. modernize things to where everybody finds it, then they end up with a lot of magic and it can be overpowering. And so you, you may have to tone it down uh, or change it to be things that are, you know, fun, like an alchemy jug or a rope of climbing, but not game breaking. Right. Because if everybody ends up with yeah. periaps of adaptation or whatever, or necklace of adaptation and, you know, so on, then, then suddenly they're invulnerable to too many things. And right. yeah. Another thing is like staffs and wands ran out of charges in first edition, if I remember right. Mm -hmm. right? So if you got a, a staff, it, it would you could use it and then after a while you wouldn't be able to use it anymore right stabs and wands and in, in fifth edition recharge so yeah, unless you use you all it, of the charges and, and then, then you roll chance like a, it but yeah a five percent chance won't. it explodes so uh you know something that wasn't a necessarily a permanent magic item back that back then is a permanent magic item now uh so just you know that sort of thing also needs to be um mm -hmm. needs to be thought about Anything else? Next time we can go into another adventure and discuss it and converting it. Yeah, I think I'm going to talk about the Desert of Desolation series and look at my favorite adventure ever, Pharaoh. One of my favorite as well. Well, with that, we can say that we have done a podcast, and that's what we're here for. So thank you for listening to said podcast, all you listeners, and thank you to our patrons. If you would like to become a patron of the show, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash MMP. Teos, you've been blogging like a madman lately. <laughs> Where can people find your work on social media? Uh, find my opinions on monsters and spells at alphastream.org. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter at alphastream. And from those two places, it'll lead you to everywhere else. How about you, Sean? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin. Or you can go to the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com. You can follow the podcast's Twitter feed at MasteringDND. Mastering Dungeons is a Misdirected Mark production. So, Teos, now that we've found our way into the village of Hamlet, what are we going to do now? 
We're going to go find living things and tear open their stomachs and see what Gary Gygax put inside for us. I think that is a wonderful pastime. <laughs> if, if a little gooey. A little bit.